Well, hello there and welcome to Matt Stevens Unplugged. And just in time for the Spring Classics, this is the Magnus Backness episode. <laughs> my, my words had a crash. I actually crashed in the... I've never crashed like that. I actually came off. Okay, here we just carry on. Um, well, what can I tell you about Big Maggie? He's a Swedish giant with a penchant for the monuments and he's put in some incredible rides during his racing career. Most notably, perhaps, though, was his 2004 victory at Paris-Roubaix, and we get into a deep discussion about his love affair with that race. He's now the father to two incredibly talented young riders, Eleanor and Zoe, and we chat about his role as their father, stroke Swanee, stroke mechanic, stroke bike fitter, stroke chef. But how well does Maggie know the death metal bands of his hometown, Linkshping? Be honest, that's what you really came here for. So, turn this podcast up to 11, let your hair down, sorry Maggie, because this is the Maggie Baxter episode. You know it's that time again, Podcast. Magnus Baxter was a talented downhill skier in his youth, which must have helped him forge those incredibly strong legs of his. His switch to cycling came very naturally to him, but if it wasn't for the support of his parents, he might not have made it in his first professional season. And Maggie now pays that support forward to his own kids, both Eleanor and Zoe, performing at the highest levels now too. Now, Magnus developed into a spring classic specialist, so I was keen to find out exactly what it takes to win Paris-Roubaix from someone who's been there, done that, and actually bought the cobblestone. Well, he didn't actually buy the cobblestone, he won it. Um, he might have got a free t-shirt, I guess, and he also won or got the, uh, a plaque on a shower. We didn't even do any deep diving into that because I'd love to see um, if Magnus, since that win, actually went and used the shower. Well, he would have done, wouldn't he? Because he got a couple of top tens after that. But uh... My name is Magnus Baxter, and I had uh, some granola uh, with milk today uh, for breakfast, actually. Very good. And Matt? Um, I'm more interested in what milk Magnus had on his granola. I, um, I had skimmed milk. Skim milk, okay. Yeah. But from a cow or from a goat or from uh, an, an almond? It was actually from a cow. Oh, right. <laughs> it was cow milk. Cow Not milk. milked by me this morning. No. But, you know. No. It's, it's almost it's almost as if you are one of the, uh, like, almost a reverse hipster by having regular milk now, Magnus. You know that, don't oh, you? I know. I know. I'm... A... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoa, this guy has got milk. Flip it. He's got milk. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, no, I, I've been moving around because I've had two coffees. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of shapes. Um, so, <laughs> all I can see now is you standing there doing like you know yoga in in, in the room. <laughs> right, I've, I've turned my gain down a bit, Nile, and I've moved the microphone ever so slightly further away because I was quite close. How's this? Is that better? Yeah. I think we should leave this sound check in. And if anybody was in, yeah, and if, if anybody was in any doubt what on earth was going on, and <laughs> say you've been to a gig, uh, well, people, you got to a gig, and um, it's like the the sound check is about that what that was, um, Magnus, wasn't it really? It was a sound check, yeah. It I mean, it, it was it was slightly different to what we normally do uh, when we commentate, Matt, but um, nevertheless, a sound check. It was a sort of sound check using um, using milk as a reference point but yeah. magnus you know, <laughs> there we go. Um, a strange start to the pod but that's what i like magnus um thanks mate for coming on the pod how the devil are you buddy you're all right i'm very good mate i'm very good and and, and where in the world 
are you? For, for, our, for our listeners, can you just describe where, where you are and also what you can see immediately around you as well? Right. I am in South Wales at the moment uh, at my home. Uh, I'm sat in the living room slash kitchen uh, slash uh, bike storage at the moment, I think. Um, looking out over the back garden through the conservatory, what I can see around me else is I've got my cobble to my left. There's oh, some- lovely jerseys from the girls europeans worlds all that sort of stuff hanging on the wall behind me uh can see my coffee machine in front of me which is obviously the centerpiece of all of that yeah well i, I like the way that you fact that, that you've got you describe the coffee machine as the centerpiece <laughs> when you've got when you've got a paris bay winning cobble in the mix i mean that shows your your modern day priorities really mate doesn't it? <laughs> yeah it does doesn't it <laughs> So, 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 so what's going on? You're a busy man, aren't you? I mean, um, just to put things into perspective a little bit, we, we obviously work together quite, well, quite, quite a lot on, on your sport, yeah. uh, GCN. Yeah, you've got, your, you've got your, your daughters that are actively racing and you're helping with that. You've, you've got your bike fit business. Um, you're, you're a busy man, aren't you? Uh, it has been very, very busy over the last year or so. Um, I've actually packed in the bike fit business as of September last year. Have you really, uh, mate? I didn't yeah, re- I have. I didn't realise um, that. No, it was it was just you know the way the world is at the moment with trying to get parts and everything else. It was um, it was becoming more and more difficult to run that. So um, we ended up sort of uh, cutting our losses with that. Unfortunately, yeah. um, you know it's something that I I really enjoyed doing for a long period of time. Um, but yeah, that such is the world, and uh, we had to move on, sort of thing. And as it happened, it kind of was the right moment as well because. So we're doing cyclocross out in Belgium the whole winter. Um, it allowed me and freed up some time for me to go out and support her and be with her and um, be the mechanic and um, Swanee cook, um, whatever else you could possibly <laughs> throw into the mix of that uh, over the winter. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not long got back here, back to the UK, actually. Um yeah, back in February we got got back. So uh, it's been been an interesting and very very um, sort of challenging winter with yeah. uh, with being out there, being away from my wife, who's obviously with Brexit, not got a Swedish passport like I luckily do. Sure. Uh, can't spend too much time in uh, in Europe. So unfortunately, we've had to spend a bit too much time apart. Um, but yeah, such is life, and yeah, um, yeah it's been very good. And um, what about um, the uh, the, the situation? Uh, sorry, my, my mind. I, I just had a strange thought that just came into <laughs> okay. my mind, which I, I'm going to have to just uh, just uh, push push briefly to one side. Well, what what I was going to say is, I'd, I'd like to step back um, and just rewind because there's so you, you've had such a busy, active career um, with lots of things going on. But can we just sort of set things straight in terms of how you initially got into the game for, for let, let's give a bit of a grounding to, to how you actually got into this cycling uh, game mate. back when you were a kid what were your first tentative steps into cycling um it was actually a, a friend of mine that i was doing downhill skiing with so i grew up on skis and um, hmm. my dad was a downhill skier and i think i was stood on skis uh, for the first time when i was about two years old Wow. Um, I raced at a very high level on, on that until my sort of 18th birthday, pretty much. Um, but yeah, a friend of mine that I was skiing with uh, was into cycling in the summer. Um, my dad had some sort of a semi-race bike, whatever you want to call it, uh, stood in the garage. And my mate said, you should come out and, and go for a ride with me one day. Uh, so I did. 
Um, and yeah, about a month later or so, we said, oh, there's a time trial up in, you know, in the sort of next door town. Yeah. Why don't you come? So I did. Um, didn't know really anything about the sport at that time. Uh, it was a 10-kilometer time trial. Um, we got there and I thought, warming up, what do I do for warming up? Uh, took my running <laughs> shoes and went for a run for a couple of kilometers. You, you went for a, sorry, you went <clears> for <throat> a run before that was as your warm up. That's my warm up for my first ever time trial. Yeah. Uh, so That's came amazing. back from the run and jumped on the bike, uh, smashed the 10 kilometers, won the race. And that was kind of it. I was hooked into it and yeah, kept on doing loads of time trials that year. Didn't really yeah. do too much, uh, I should probably add into. I was about twelve years old at the time. Okay. Um, so I didn't. I didn't really do any any road races as such. My first season, it was more just doing time trials. Um, ended up after three months winning the national championships uh, for twelve year olds. Yeah. Um, oh. And and yeah, that 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 kind of got me really hooked into it. And I was doing downhill skiing and cycling. Um, like I said, until I was eighteen. At which point, yeah. Um, events occurred that made me choose cycling it's it's really interesting how many um athletes now especially from the, the scandinavian countries who um blend both sports i, I know there's a, a couple of the riders from the at least one or two from the uno x team who are still who pros at world tour and, yeah. and still do really high competitive skiing uh, cross-country skiing in the winter and it, they complement each other um equally i mean downhill is a little bit different but i mean the just <laughs> you were, yeah yeah i mean but you're still you're working your muscles in a completely different way but clearly it complemented your ability to just produce massive amounts of power yeah i mean as, as a downhill skier um we spend an awful lot of time in the gym um during the off season and cycling i thought was just a a good way of of adding some some strength and endurance to um to the power that i built in the in in the gym so kind of converting into more uh, dynamic explosive power yeah. uh, so, so cycling was really just a, a tool for me to get fitter and and stronger and you know be able to cope with a, a two minute long downhill run or you know the minute long giant slaloms that that you that you run and there's so much force going into to this to the skiing that you know you're carrying we we worked out with some pressure plates back then that i was carrying about 360 kilos on the outside leg through every single turn you multiply that wow. by 52 turns um, that's a lot of reps isn't it that's a lot of reps um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, so um so yeah it it's sort of yeah that that was the reason to why i i decided to do the downhill skiing but i did a lot of cross-country skiing but a little bit later on uh when i'd actually decided to uh, to sort of focus on cycling 100 percent. so hmm. when i went back to sweden in the winter um you know, he did a couple of hours on the turbo trainer in the morning and then went out cross-country skiing for a couple of hours in the afternoon. And that was a, a very, very good workout and something that actually, you know, I think laid itself very well for the opening part of the season. You came to the first training camp really, maybe not bike fit, but really, really fit. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, as as the races kind of went on, you, you you found your legs on the bike again. So what was the first, I mean, what was the actual, the scene like? I mean, clearly you were doing a lot of tantras in the early days and you moved through different clubs until you ultimately were racing as, um, as, a, as a top amateur. What's the, what was the scene like? So I guess we're talking 
early 90s, late, very late 80s here, aren't we, for you? Because what you, you're five years younger than 47 at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah. Um, it, it was it was good. Uh, we had a good local scene of, of sort of racing um, with the clubs around the sort of region that I, that I come from. Um, and then obviously mum and dad were always there to to back me up and, and take me further afield as well to uh, to start racing nationally as well. Um, and we had we had quite a good group of guys sort of my around my age, a couple of years older and a couple of years younger as well. Um, and I think if you go back and look at the, the Swedish riders that sort of raced through the era that, that I was racing, there, there were some very, very good bike riders around. Yeah. Um, so the, I think in terms of pure numbers of riders, Swedish riders being good, it was probably the heyday of, of Swedish cycling. Um, I know we got some, some like mega star names like, uh, um, you know, the, the Petson brothers and, and, um, you know, Alf Segesel and, and, and the likes Lars Valkvist who, who were very, very good professional bike riders and sure. Josta Pettersson winning the Giro. Uh, you know, but but I think in terms of pure numbers of riders being out onto in the professional scene, that that was probably the biggest Sweden has ever seen. Yeah, and to what at what point then um, did you decide that cycling was going to be what you did? And when did you? It's a question I ask every ex-pro because I think it's quite an important one. Because mm. some people are when they're very young, they're like, right, I want to be a pro. Others, it kind of just happens. They just fall into doing it, and they. There's never really any definitive moment where they make this calc- almost calculated decision. So how did that evolve for you, Magus? No, your first pro team was Colstrop, wasn't it, in 1996? But what was the point that you thought, right, I want to go abroad um, or go into kind of Northern Europe and, and, and start racing? So I I was doing a lot of team time trialing back in that day. That, that That's still when the, the sort of 100-kilometer team time trial on four riders was – a very very big uh, part of of amateur cycling at least yeah. um and sweden had very strong tra- traditions in in that discipline so i as a as a second year junior i got picked up by the um elite uh, national team to start doing um you know training camps with them for the 100k t- team time trial and straight away i was sort of in the, on that level that um, they were even considering, <clears throat> you know, getting me a dispensation to ride uh, the worlds for Sweden as a the elite worlds for Sweden as a as a junior. Um, unfortunately, that didn't quite come off. Um, but but it it kind of gave me that understanding that I was I was probably quite good at what I did. Um, and then that winter, when I went from junior to elite, I had two massive crashes in in downhill at high speeds. Um, right. At the same time, as I then got got a sort of uh, a firm position within the the, the four man team time trial setup, um, and that kind of made my decision for me. Really, it wasn't really a conscious decision. And once I was out there with with the big boys um, doing you know, international racing for, for the national team, for my uh, then club and up in Uppsala, north of Stockholm. Um, you know, we were out doing Franco-Belge and, and all these kind of races early. That was at the early part of the season back then. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I straight away kind of found my found my feet within, within the sport. And I, at that point, I think, made that decision that, okay, I, I really want to make a, a good go out of this. Um, so 
Yeah, when I, I think I just graduated from uh, school um, back in Sweden, and that that very same day, I, I came back home and I sat my mum and dad down around the dinner table, and we had a long discussion about things. And I said, "Look, um, I will work through the winter if uh, you guys can help support me. Um, you know, I'll pass whatever money I make from from working on to you guys." Um, and if I'm not professional by the time I'm 23 years old, I said, I will, I will basically stop this. I'll go back to school, to university and get the best education I possibly can and put all my energy um, into doing that. Um, and 12 months later, I, I basically signed my first pro contract. That's brilliant. So, so my que- yeah, the fact that you remember <laughs> that day really, spe- that's, that's a wonderful thing. So you, you clearly had, had thought about it for a long time and the, the, the fact, the way that you, engaged your family in that in that process and clearly I guess because of the amount of support they'd, they'd, they'd given you up to that point you felt a responsibility to them as well that's that's really that's really pretty cool especially now as a as a, as a father of two of the most you know amazing young athletes in in the sport you you can clearly see how important that is I, it, it was you know without them I couldn't have done any of the stuff that I did as a as an athlete and and yeah. you know especially through the younger years but even even at a later point as well when you know when I turned professional and um, moved down to Belgium and you sat there and things aren't quite going the way you were hoping they would go um, at the at the early parts of the season and you're suffering to even stay on the wheels of in in the races and just having that support from from my my, my family behind me um you know it, it meant everything and it, that's what got me through that first half of this my first professional season i think just knowing that they they were always there on on the end of the phone um backing me and um you know like i remember mum. i at one point i said to mom my mum that you know I, I i i don't i don't think i can do this i you know i might as well come home and and she said, look, um, it, it's no more difficult for us to come and get you to take you home, but don't do it until you finished out the first yeah. season. Give it the full go. If at the end of the year you decide that this is not for me, then that's fine, and you can you know we come and get you and bring all your stuff stuff back home. Because she was also the one who sort of said, look, you know, let's move all your stuff down to Belgium, get get you an apartment down in Belgium, so that you feel that you have your own home there. You you live there, yeah. and you know you got all your your sort of normal stuff around you, and you don't end up living in 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 a B&B or or a hotel or something like that or living you know in someone else's house kind of thing but you actually know that you got your own place um and it feels like home and and I think that was absolutely key to to me feeling somewhat at home in Belgium already when I walked into the apartment the first day um so so they they were instrumental in in everything at the uh, at the early parts of of my career there that's that's really really lovely, and, and I guess um, you're now. You know, you, I would imagine when you're just talking about your the bike fit business falling away, just at the point where where Zoe was, um, in particular, starting to win very very big indeed. And you, uh, am I right in saying that now you're more a little bit involved in her management and looking after her from a, almost like a semi full time um, point of view? Yeah. I think Eleanor, you know, riding for Trek Alfredo, she and and doing road racing, road road and cyclocross are so different in that, you know, she's with the team, she flies out to the races, she races with the team, and she comes back home. She and and Charlie, her, her fiance, have got got a house only a couple of kilometers up the road here, so 
you know, I'm I'm much much less involved in her day to day sort of you know life um, yeah. as as it should be when you know they're coming coming up to to the sort of early twenties and so on, um, and and you know she's got the backup from the team which has been amazing through the the first three years here now, um, but cyclocross is much more of a a sort of a family um, business I, I I guess we should say. And and obviously, so is still only seventeen years old. So she's still she's still very very young. Um, so she needs she needs a lot more uh, input and and help and uh, ferrying around to to races and so on. Uh, and I guess having having a parent there all the time, it, it kind of gives her that security to be able to um, to do what she wants to do and to to perform at the level that that she has done th- this winter. So, um, you know, at the moment, yeah, that's, that's still the case, but going forward, I have no doubt in my mind that, that that's going to sort of, uh, change a bit as well. And especially with road racing going into, um, you know, bigger teams and so on that, that will definitely change, but cyclocross, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see a little bit what she wants, um, to do and, and how she, she wants it. I know she's very keen on me being in the pits and hand, especially handing her her bike. Um, yeah. It's such a crucial part of the cycle, cyclocross thing. Um, and we seem to have this, this very good understanding when, um, you know, it's almost like we always got eye contact through that, that change, which makes, makes life very, very easy for her, I guess. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard enough going through a feed zone, getting a bottle and getting right onto it. Getting a full on bike, mate, is is another kettle of fish. No, it's it's um, I mean, while we've been we're talking about your, your daughters, we can't really, mate. We will dig into your career a, li- a little bit more um, later in the pod, but we you can't really not discuss the success of, of both Eleanor and Zoe. I mean, uh, did you when you had kids? Obviously, with, with, with Megan, did, at, at any point did you? When they were babies, basically both young kids, not, not even touching bikes. Did you have any, as a as a as a, as a couple who um, obviously Megan rode at an international level as well? Um, you've done what you've done. Did you ever have a discussion or or before they started to grow up about what you thought your kids might do? I'm just intrigued. <laughs> or did you always think that they might end up being being uh, bikies? I mean, how did that how did that roll out? And we had no real sort of thoughts that they might pick and take up cycling as a, yeah. as a sport or do we were just like whatever they want to do we'll 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 support them a hundred percent um <clears throat> clearly they we, we were quite sort of keen on making sure that they were active and and did a sport of some sort to um a fairly fairly high level in and more in terms of commitment than in terms of getting the results out of it sure. uh, but just just being committed to to a sport because i think sport brings so so many other aspects into your lives um in terms of you know time management and structuring your life and and you know targets goals everything else that, 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 that just kind of, a simple discipline discipline, discipline yeah, yeah simple discipline yeah, yeah um so we were quite keen on on that but we never thought that they would take up cycling and um it definitely wasn't something that we sort of pushed them towards um but i think eleanor she must have been I think four years old when she said she wanted a, a race bike. And at that point we kind of went, okay, let's, you know, let's get her a bike. Um, and yeah, it just never stopped. And they've both done other, other sports. And, and every time that they come up to this, 
sort of point where for one reason or another have had to choose between one training session or another because they they were clashing they've always chosen the cycling mm. um but at, at the same time i think that that means to me at least uh, that that they have chosen this path um because they love the sport that they're doing it's not because mum and dad were doing it and they feel obliged that they they should do it as well um and that's always been a big worry of of mine at least that they um they felt that they should do this sport but clearly they've got a a love a love for just riding a bike that um you know is, is pretty pretty special yeah i mean having spent a little bit of time with with both your daughters you know i did the, the obviously the sigma sports cafe ride with Eleanor. it's well it seems like an eternity ago it's a couple it of is years almost ago, an eternity. obviously <laughs> we had something yeah big and global that that um in between that uh, that ride in in the age which which was great fun and, and what i get i got from speaking to her and obviously come across zoe on numerous occasions at various events is if you don't mind me saying just a, a very very it's just a, a pure, unadulterated joy at riding, mate. I mean, that's what you see. I mean, they're, they're riding at the highest level um, for both their respected ages, as, as, as we know. But what what seems to be undimmed is is their enthusiasm and their delight at riding. Um, and, and, and they're also, which is a credit to you and, and Megan, is how grounded and, and, and just... Thank you. It's still, mate, it's 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 a it's so important. Um, there's no clearly there's pressure, but they, they deal with it. And, and the fact that you have given them these opportunities, but let them run with it themselves and offered that support whilst letting them express themselves is is um, it's wonderful to see. It really is. I, I think I need to say that. Thank you. Um, I, I think it's so important that they they do this because they want to do it and because they love riding their bikes. And I think lockdown especially um has has shown me how much both of them love being out on their bikes um and i was always zoe was quite late coming to to the the sport in terms of wanting to perform at a at a high level she always rode a bike but she was a bit more reluctant and and i guess if you if you look on onto the internet and and have a search around for you know she's done a couple of articles where she basically said up until the age of probably about 14 she yeah. hated riding a bike she she just <laughs> didn't didn't you know she want, didn't want to do more than an hour on the bike and and we just let let her to it and then all of a sudden one day she wakes up and decides that no I want I want to ride um yeah. and lockdown really showed she was up every morning and whether she was bouncing around on a cyclocross bike or mountain bike in the back garden when the lockdown was strict and she made cyclocross circuits out just out the back from our, uh, you know, the, the gates at the back of, of our house. Um, we got sort of an old disused um, railway um, out the back there and she was making all these obstacles and things and, and playing around or we, you know, when the lockdown ceased somewhat, we, we went for gravel rides, mountain bike rides, road rides, sure. you, you name it. it. It just showed that, that she really wanted to ride, just ride her bike. Um, yeah. uh, and, and that, that was very important. And, you know, the fact that they, and this is something that, that for me is very, very important is that they, they create this, I guess their own path of riding a bike uh, yeah. which is why we never never pushed them in any direction to pick um you know do this or that or you know even to get them onto a bike but um they they want to do it so is 
you know, her, her main focus is to cycle across. Um, and that's great, you know, and the fact that she is creating her own name in, in you know, in, in the world of cycling, um, as is Eleanor uh, and their own ways of doing things. And, you know, I, I, it's quite nice now I've read on a number of occasions in the Belgian media that, you know, I'm becoming the father of rather than Zoe being the daughter of, um, yeah, of, of yes. me. Yeah, and that, to me, yeah. that, that was the best anyone could ever have, have written. It's flipped around, fact. isn't it? It's yeah, flipped yeah. around. And, yeah, and it yeah. means that, you know, both of them are, are, are sort of, well, they've already outperformed what I've ever done. But, um, you know, the fact that, that, that I'm becoming the, the father of is, is really quite nice to, um, to, to read um, because I want them to be their own characters and their own, uh, make their own um, path in the, in the world of cycling. No, definitely. I mean, it's when you said that they wanted to just ride like an hour a day, didn't really like riding. So I, I had that experience when I was um, cycling in the early days when I was 15, 16, I actually, as a kid wanted to do other stuff. And mm. my dad used to say, go out for an hour or something. And there was a couple of times where, um, my dad went to work on a, on a weekend and my mum wasn't there, but he said, go on your bike, just do an hour. And, and or I used to get my kit, make it wet in the sink. So it looked like I'd sweated, <laughs> move my bike around. So it looked like it'd come out and then just sit at home and watch telly. <laughs> just, <laughs> seriously, because I, uh, that's, but, that's another level. That that's is another level. But I just thought, no, I don't want to do it. But, but then then finally, I, I wanted to. I realized I went out, obviously, uh, and then I finally, it, it just bit me. Then I knew I, I wanted to do it, but I, I mm. couldn't be forced. I mean, that's just a, a, a just a different example. Kids have to find their own way. The more yeah. you push them at that at that point where they're about to make that decision, you do have to give them the space to express themselves, just as kids, yeah. not as athletes in any way. And and it's it's really really important because we we do hear uh, of kids getting burnt out very young. Yeah, by parents that are a little bit pushy and stuff, and and the fact that you've, um, well, they, they're they're blossoming, aren't they? They're two lovely people. This is the most important thing, but doing yeah. brilliantly. There's one other thing that I just want to touch on before we get to roughly the halfway point and through the feed zone of this podcast. <laughs> feed zone, um, yeah. um, what, what are we going the feed zone bag, Matt? Um, I'm, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know because the the the, um, the Swannies have prepared it, so we'll just oh, have okay. to just take okay. out the feed yeah, and have a right. look. Yeah. And because because we're on different teams, perhaps we might just swap if you've got something I like and yeah, you, okay. and, and, and vice versa. So yeah, yeah, I, just... haven't, I've, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> it depends what what Niall and the and the Sigma crew have put in our in our, our musettes. Okay. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, but what was it like, Magnus? Because I've I saw I was in Belgium for the the uh, the World Championships, um, and obviously saw Zoe win. You were commentating on it for crying out loud, yeah. And that 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 little video that was taken in the booth essentially went viral, didn't it? Yeah. Of you calling home your daughter. Um, well, I didn't. I didn't do so much calling, did I? No, you're standing. I kind, up, of, I mean, I kind of went quiet with about a kilometer to go, and, and yeah, yeah. Just talk about that because she was in, up up the road. Brilliant race with with the young American girl. What was that feeling? like Magnus doing a professional job trying I mean tr I mean trying to remain impartial absolutely impossible it's your daughter for God's sake what was that like uh, to start off with I, I mean you I was just nervous for her because I knew she was in good shape and and mm. I knew she had it was a circuit that really suits her attri attributes as a as a rider so I was just nervous um and then the whole GB team they rode 
so 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 well that day um probably one of the the best performances i've seen for as as a team um in that age category for i think ever yeah um and it, it was just a, a massive team effort and and you're sitting there and you're watching it and you know, I was really impressed with with how they they dealt with every scenario of of that race, and then obviously the attack comes and and the two of them go away, Kaya and and Zoe goes away, um, and get a good gap, and then you start to think, oh, here we go, um, you know, she's actually got an outside chance of of winning this, um, and I, I I could see that she wasn't cornering quite the way she normally does, right. um, which kind of freaked me out a bit because I thought if if this girl jumps Zoe um before the final corner and she's cornering the way she is um you know the gap might be too big to close but for some reason she had it under control and kind of kept Kaya in 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 that position um you know she she had her under control um especially going into that final turn but at that point I was I was just I'd already lost it. Um, you know, I was I was too nervous to to even even speak. So luckily, Marty McDonald was uh, commentating with me. Who, how he held it together because he's known Zoe since day one. I think I think he was, she yeah. was might have been three years three days old when um, when Marty met her the first time. So it was very emotional for him as well. But I, I just couldn't I just couldn't commentate. I thought if I open my mouth here, I don't know what's <laughs> going to come out. So I kept it I kept as quiet as I could. Um, apart from some apparently heavy breathing going down the microphone. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it was just one of those moments when she lit up the sprint. Um, and you, you know, when you get that camera angle, you can't quite tell whether they're, oh, yeah. you know, whether she's ahead or whether she's they're, they're even in the sprint. Um, so it wasn't until that final camera shot where I could see she was a bike length clear and um, put her hand up in the air. And yeah, those of you who've seen the the the, the, the clip knows. <laughs> You know the rest of it, but there was definitely some tears shed there. Um, and as I found out, the reason why she um, she cornered so strangely was the fact that she um, she punctured very early on in the race, um, ran tubeless tires. They sealed, but with only about three bars of pressure in the rear wheels. So, wow. um, but she thought, well, you know, I'm going to spend more energy um, going back and changing the wheel than I am going around the corner slightly slower. Um, so I guess the cyclocross skills riding around on, you know, 1.2 bars in, in the tires kind of came in handy at that point because she was used to the tires feeling a bit sort of squidgy underneath her. And, and also shows not, not just amazing physical press, which she has in, has, which she has in spades was, was that at such a young age, she clearly made that decision herself and she remained cool, calm, worked it out and thought I'm, I'm going to cope with this. So there's a, a clearly an innate calmness that she has about her as well. And, uh, and, um, a real maturity as well. Yeah, I think I think so, um, and I think both of them I've, I've learned through the years to to deal with all these sort of adverse uh, things that happen, you know, challenges that come up, uh, you know, in 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 their lives, um, and learn how to how to stay calm and, and deal with it. And I think it I don't think it's something that you can teach. It just I guess partly it's built in. Um, but also going through all these things, uh, you know, throughout the years that they've been riding bikes and and so on, it kind of teaches you to um, to deal with them. Um, you know, 
throwing the toys out the pram isn't gonna isn't gonna make it any better so sure. um, make the most qualified decision that you can at the time and and crack on uh, and I think that's what both of them have, have learned to do they certainly have mate and they've they're only just starting their careers what we'll do now we're going to where we are roughly at the, at the feed zone. I've just seen it in the distance as a few of the swannies uh, just on the right hand side of the road. I'm just trying to find um, my m- Nile um, yep. with our musette. Um, but what that means is roughly the halfway point. It's time, Magnus, for the Linkaping quiz. Yo, yo. What's up? Y'all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Ta-ta, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Linshipping quiz. Nice. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no expense spared on the no. production um, at Sigma Sports, mate, uh, as you well know. Um, how was the pronunciation of Linkaping? Um, I think Niles had that really nailed there, Linshipping. Link shipping, okay. Yeah, that was, that was so, really good. Um, so that's where you were, were brought, were born and brought up. It was, yeah. Well, we moved moved around quite a lot, but um, yeah, my first sort of fifteen years, I think it was at least in uh, in in and around that area. Well, let's hope you've um, retained some knowledge. So, I must admit, uh, Magnus, what I'm not going to do is really put you on the spot. I don't like to do that with my podcast oh, guests. It's a multiple thanks, choice, all right? So okay, okay. If, if in doubt, you can have a punt, okay? Yeah. Um, now, they are quite tenuous, and, 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 and some of these things might have happened since you'd left um, Linkaping, but um, let's have a go. Let's just okay, have a go. Okay. Right, here we go. Um, I'm going to move the questions around a bit. Just um, Shuffle. Here. Okay. Yeah, let's just let's start with, um, with question... We're going to start with question number two, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is ever so slightly weird. But okay, how many Magnus? How many Magnuses or Magnus I? I'm not too sure what the plural of Magnus is. I don't know. Okay, Magnuses. first or so. How many Magnuses with the first or second name, so they can have Magnus as a surname or Magnus as a first name, are there on the Linkaping Wikipedia notable residents page, including you? So you know when you go on Wikipedia, because we do it a lot yeah, yeah. with commentating, um, they have a notable residence page. There okay. are a certain amount of Magnuses. How right. many are there, including you? And this could be a Magnus as a surname or Magnus as a first name. Is it two Magnuses or Magnus I, <laughs> three, four, or five? Ooh. How many notable residents of Linkaping are there on the notable residence page? That is a very, very... Difficult Random. question. Mm. Two, three, four, or five. I'm going to go with four. Straight is correct. Totally oh. correct, mate. Um, now, <laughs> that was a wild guess. That it one. was a wild guess, but it was a good wild guess <laughs> yeah. because there was a pause where you thought about it. Yes, I got for, a for, point for a bonus point, Magnus. And you can't use yourself because that's you know that's obvious. Yeah. Uh, can you give me? Two of the other famous Magnuses that have, or Magnusi that have come from Linkaping. Um, no, I can't actually. Like okay. I said, it was just a, <laughs> a wild guess. Okay, thought, here's one: Mag- Magnus Johansson, a former professional Swedish ice hockey player. Yeah. Um, and then Magnus Andersson, who was a Swedish handball manager who competed um, yeah. in the 1992 and 1996 summer olympics yeah and then we've got obviously yourself and another one uh, but well done so 100 percent score um and we're moving on to question number two now so we just did that that was question number one we, oh, no. we did question so we did question two as question one 
<laughs> oh, now you're confusing me, mate. I've started. So uh, anyway, you've got 100% so far. Good. Question, question, this is question number one, which is question number two. <laughs> okay. Okay. Magnus, what is the name of the heavy metal band from Linkiping whose song Ritual was named by heavy metal magazine Kerrang! as one of the top 50 most evil songs ever. So, Linkaping have got a really well-known heavy metal band. Um, what is the name of the band? Is it A, Doommonger, B, Ghost, C, The Haunted Fish, or C, Hammer Horse? <laughs> Wow, I had, a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with those names. I bet you um, did. One so, of them is correct. One of those, um, they are they are a very well known heavy metal band, mate. They were formed in about two thousand and four, I think, two thousand five, yeah. um, and they've had hits all over the world. Um, so, can you can you give me the the options again there? Yeah. Okay. A. Doommonger. B. I, I can stop. I, th- I, th- I think it's Doommonger. I think it's A. A. It's not. I made oh. up Doommonger. It is Ghost. Is that was they a are... good name for a band, though, man. I know. <laughs> I, I did like Doommonger. I, I, I was very fond of the Haunted Fish. And also Hammer Horse is very scandic. Um, but there we go. Yeah. So, right. Okay. Moving on to question number three, which, funnily enough, Magnus, is actually question number three. Um, nice. Okay. What street inst- installations or sculptures started started appearing on roundabouts in Linkaping during the autumn of 2006, um, being placed by anonymous people that then spread to the rest of Sweden and then the world? So in the autumn of 2006, these little sculptures started to appear on roundabouts in the city um, right. and then spread to the rest of Sweden and late latterly to the rest of the world. Um, what, what were the sculptures of? Were they A, of cats, B of Vikings, C of dogs, or D of a dragon. So cat, Viking, dog, and dragon, and there were these small sculptures, installations on roundabouts in the city. That is a good question. Mm. Um, quite fun because I'm in Wales, I'm just going. I'm just going to go with dragons because you know, dragons. Sadly, not. It was the <sighs> dog. It was a dog. Um, I've not yeah. seen any dogs in roundabouts up here. No, apart from, um, apart from stray ones, but you know. No, there, there was basically a famous sculpture was on a roundabout um, by a famous um, Swedish artist. It oh, got right. vandalized, and then somebody replaced it with a metal dog. And then on, on all the other roundabouts, other people started to place these sculptures in respect of the original installation. And then it spread. Well, this is a bonus question. It even spread to the UK. Um, now, what town? Was there a a Linkaping inspired roundabout dog? Um, because this is and it, <laughs> it, it, just have just guess a town, and it's yeah. something to do with the first club that I rode for, mate. Oh, okay. Um, um. and they're they're known as the roundabout dogs, um, and it's called a a rodelhund, a rondelhund. A rondelhund. Um, no, I can't. I can't, I can't really get it, mate. The, no, the, there, I'm was not a, get there was a, there was a, an actual proper Rondelhund in Hemel Hempstead on the multiple roundabout in Hemel Hempstead, which is oh, apparently that? the most complicated roundabout in the whole of Europe because it's a roundabout with lots of roundabouts that go around the outside of it, and and there was a Rondelhund there. Oh. How cool is that? Oh, that makes <clears> sense. <throat> it does indeed. Right, <clears throat> I'm gonna clear my throat. Got the final question. So that's so you 
you've got that wrong, unfortunately, mm. Magnus. So you've still got a chance, if you get this one right, to get half the amount of points. 50% score okay. is pretty right. solid. So, And this is actually question four as well. So quest- the final question, question four. In 1968, what world championships were held in Linkiping? Okay, so what world championships were held? Was it A, swimming, B, orienteering, C, chess, or D, table tennis? Orienteering. Correct, Amondo, mate. Look at that. Oh, can we have a round of applause for that one, please, Niall, as well, from uh, the, our studio audience? They've been a thank bit quiet. You, thank you. There you go. Oh, uh, I, I, feel, nice I feel good now. <laughs> and as a bonus question to lift you above 50%, um, there are four events, okay, in the World Championships, the yeah. male and female, and then the team male and female. Um, how many gold medals in that World Championships did Sweden win? Three. They did? <laughs> How'd you know that? <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well done. Yeah, I just know that orienteering was a really, really big sport in Sweden uh, for a long time. Uh, so I kind of guess 75% would be the right. Well, well done. So that, that brings you to a score of, of 75%. Well, well done. Thank um, you. Which is pretty decent. I think that's above well, average. Considering um, I haven't lived up there since 96. It's, uh, it's a, yeah. was, was that the last time you went there was 96. And the last and, time and I lived all, up there was 96, yeah. So it's quite a long time ago, isn't it? And, and, um, and also, um, if, we, if we were ever at a loose end on a commentary gig, we can form a band called Doommonger, mate, as well. Yeah, let's do I that. Uh, yeah. let's, definitely, <laughs> let's definitely do that. Um, there we go. Right, back to, back to the, the, the meat and bones of the pod. Um, You've won Paris-Roubaix, as we well know, as as we will, as well, it's just an amazing victory for yourself. But talk about your first ever Paris-Roubaix, which was in 1998, wasn't it? And yeah. When, which you, you were top 10 in, wasn't it? So how, how did how did that one go? And what was it like riding? We've got the classics just coming up in the, in the next few weeks. The classic season is, is almost upon us with Milano San Remo this weekend. I'm actually heading out to that, which I'm excited about. Mm. But um, what was your first... Paris-Roubaix like Magnus and what was expected of you at the time um I think there's only one word to describe that really and that would be amazing um I'd I'd dreamt of that race of of just doing that race since um yeah I think 92 when Duclos Lasalle won it the first time yep Uh, I had posters of him on my wall back home in in Linköping um you know rock shock on the front and mud splattered all over him and and all that no helmet (laughs) yeah Um, it was just epic as far as I was concerned to to do that and then I got on the taste for riding those cobblestones in in Franco-Belge um my first in 94 that was um when when you know my first year elite uh, we actually finished on the on the velodrome with Franco-Belge before the pros came in and I was stood there watching uh, Andre Schmiel come uh, come across the line winning winning that one and uh, you know since then it, it was I was just fixated with this race and going into the 98 season, I signed for Gann. You know, I had a good, good spring, um, really, you know, taking another step up in, in terms yeah. of my performance level and waking up that morning and, and I could just feel that there's something special in the air and, you know, you're rolling up on those horrible cobbles of, of in Compiègne, which I, I think is probably the half just 
sector of the whole the whole race <laughs> um, before we've even started that is um, so it, it, it was just yeah really really cool but my I I've, I I went there as a as a domestique um, you know me and Eros Poli were looking after Fred Monkerson and uh, Hank Fogus Joe Grady um, yeah. you know that that was kind of our our job. Um, and as the race went on, um, muddy as anything, uh, it was one of those days where it didn't rain on the day, but it, it had rained a lot. So everything was wet. Every single sector was, was, you know, an inch of, of mud on the top of the cobblestones. And, and quite quickly, I realized that I was, I was able to, you know, two wheel drift around the corners and, you know, rode my bike in a completely different way that really suited that, those kind of conditions. And all of a sudden I look around and, um, we're a very, very select group with Ballerini and, um, Bortolami, um, Ross and, um, Leon van Bonmi, Fredo, um, you know, and, and it was kind of, yeah, just, wow, I'm, I'm in the mix here. Um, <laughs> yeah. it was, it was one of those, I didn't, I did not expect to be there, uh, with that kind of company. So actually being there and, and riding at that level was, was just amazing. Um, you know, dealing with the forest of Arenberg the first time and knowing that we had to hit that front row and I kind of dragged, led Fred out to make sure that he was there and then kind of got somewhat swamped and then ended up just behind a massive pileup and having to run across this, this sort of mountain of bikes and, and riders, um, just basically cyclocross style it over the top of everyone uh, wow. and back on the bike and chasing back on. And that, that just added to that sort of epicness of that we all know Paris-Roubaix is every year. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, managed to, to make that, that, that front group. And, um, you know, I was still riding in, in the services of, of Fred, who's finished on the podium before. Um, and when Ballerini went, that was, you know, one of the most awesome things that I've ever seen when, when he made the attack, um, and, Fred and I tried to uh, to chase him down, but he was just on a different level to to the rest of us that day, and um, you know, just showed why he is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Mister Parabay. Um, but but then, yeah, just carried on that whole race and led Fred out on the on the velodrome and um, finished seventh myself. Uh, and I remember after the race. Um, Roger Leger came up to me, uh, you know, as I got to, to the team truck and I sort of lent my bike up against the truck and gave me, he gave me a pat on the back and, you know, I thought I said that was, that was really something special. And, and I said, I will win this race one day before I hang up my bike. And, and from that moment on, it became a mission to, to yeah. try and accomplish that. That's amazing. I mean, when you look at it, it was one of the, I mean, every power, every edition of Paris Bay has, has something special about it but I think it's fair to say when you go back over the last 25 years <clears throat> this was one of the epics one and funnily enough I was looking at the bike that, that he rode actually the Conago that Ballerini mm. won the, just the other week when I was da- over down in, uh, in in Italy but he won it didn't he by four minutes and 16 seconds on yeah, yeah it's um, just crazy yeah, I mean uh, and it was uh, there must have been a different a, um, a prevailing wind that, that slowed you down a little bit because it was say only but it's 38.2 k's an hour nearly seven hours in the saddle so actually you he was 657 you guys were four minutes adrift or just just over yeah um so you were seven hours uh, yeah in the saddle that day but it was 
again, top three for Mapai. Ballerini, Taffy second, Williford Peters, Peters, and then Van Bon, Moncassam, Sorensen, Yu, Bortolami just behind Vogels, um, the third of the Gan riders home. But that's esteemed company. And, 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 and as a relatively young pro then, it, it must have been amazing, an amazing experience. Yeah, it, it was. And I think I don't think it was actually the wind that, that slowed us down that day. It was just um, the amount just of sheer mud. mud on the right. cobblestones that, that, that made it impossible almost to carry any speed. It was more a, a sort of a, um, a, 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 you had to be so gentle um, with a, the way that you applied the power and the way that you rode the cobbles that day and the amount of motorbikes and people that crashed every every sector there was something happening um you know and, and i remember going through some of the corners and quite literally with you know on two-wheel drift yeah. uh, and just hoping that you were going to hold the bike upright um yeah, it was just just probably one of the most epic days that that I've had in that race, and I think it's apart from the year that that um, Servais Knaven won, I think it's been largely dry since then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was, yeah, one of the best days on a bike ever. And just going to briefly go back to a, a few weeks. Um, I think a few weeks later, um, the, the Pru Tour of nineteen ninety eight, mate. There was stage two um, of the Pru Tour, <laughs> won by your teammate Stuart O'Grady. And do you remember me and you in the move? Um, in, yeah, from from Gateshead to York, and it yeah. went over Rosedale Chimney, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Do you remember? I remember riding. I mean, anybody who's listening from a, doesn't know Rosedale Chimney. It's one of the steepest climbs in the UK in England. Yeah. Um, and Magnus at that. You, what were you riding at? You were he- the heaviest rider in the peloton, weren't you? You're a big lad. Probably we ever. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and I remember riding up Rosedale Chimney or alongside you, passing you, but then over the top, we got in this group. Um, and it, that was a pretty that was a pretty exciting day on the bike, actually. I mean, there's not – I mean, um, and the riders we had around. So, do, do you remember that day? Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> um, it, it was – like those those climbs were just brutal. I mean, some of them were 30-odd percent steep, if, if, yeah, I'm, if right, I yeah. remember right. Um, and I remember – especially one thing that I remember that day is coming down one of the descents, and it was this tiny little bridge, bridge at the bottom, like a little hump bridge, you know. And I remember Stu and me like clearing air on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> doing a tail whip on the road bike and then swinging straight up into this 30% climb. Uh, but yeah, brutal, brutal day out. That That is, I mean, yeah, O'Grady won the stage. Yeah. Um, and there was, yeah, Boardman was in the next little group. And then with Jonathan Vorters, you were ninth. Yeah. And you led my the group I was in home and I was 14th. And then Nicky Sorensen there, Hincapi was in the group, Ekimov. Tyler Hamilton. It was quite a, it's quite a punchy group, wasn't it? It's quite it? a select little group, though. Yeah, especially yeah. for me. I, I was, I was loving it. I, I was, <laughs> I was really loving it. But I remember they. I think you might have been. I can't remember exactly what's happening, but it, we there was no real sprint. It was just one long line into the finish in York. Do you remember? We, we were just absolutely flat stick. I do yeah. remember it so vividly. I was just hanging on for grim death. Yeah, it, I mean. That that day it was it was a, a weird weird day in terms of that those climbs really I think took it out of of every rider in in yeah. the peloton. It didn't matter whether you were the best climber or the worst climber. It, it just it just zapped everyone. And I think that coming in towards the finish, it was it was just whatever you had left is what you gave, and and that just meant that it was one long straight line. It was no one no one even got out of the chair to to sprint. It. 
I, I love the fact, Magnus, that you've obviously had a uh, far more successful career and longer like racing career than I have. But um, the fact that you can still, if, if, if you threw you a stage in any particular race, invariably, after a little bit of thinking, you can still focus and remember. And I can do it. I, I can't remember everything. But if somebody says to me, do you remember this day? And I'm like, well, actually, yes. Isn't it amazing how we can recall yeah. days of racing? Um, and yet you had, I didn't expect to have that much clarity because I didn't tee you up on this. I've just thrown it at you because it's one of the times where we were racing properly together. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I, you know, but uh, I, I love the fact that you, I see my mind sometimes as like a little bit of a Rolodex filing back through. Then you pull out this little bit of card and you look and you can, you can drill down and remember you've still got the memories from the day. And the funny, thing, the funny thing, isn't it funny how, all the epic days, the days where the worst weather, the grimmest conditions, the hardest, you know, the most fatigued you, you've ever been. Those are usually at the front of that deck. Yeah. And then this sort of goes goes further and further. To, you know, when those those easy days when you just sat in the bunch rolling along, those those are much, much further down the, ca- the, the filing cabinet. Um, but for, yeah, like especially those real epic, epic days, I, I remember them like they, they were yesterday. You can, you can almost you know go minute by minute play on on the whole stage it is it's very cool just um just a quick one let's go back again to the Roubaix, the first Roubaix, 90 the same year with the race we were just talking about in the yeah. in the the pro tour um what, what was your bike just from a tech perspective magnus because of the, the leaps and, and i know you're really into your tech your bikes and, and it's something when we do commentate especially on on a on a long day we can drill down into the tech side which i quite enjoy but it's not what i'm i'm an expert on but just to put into contrast the difference in tech from best part of 25 years ago now yeah. to now, um, Parabay still is brutally hard, but the kit you were riding on back then, talk us through your bike that, that, that you were riding uh, in 1998 for, and, and what the setup was like. So um, if you start from the bottom, it was 36-spoke um, double-crossed um, Ambrosio Nemesis rims okay. um, with – yeah, just uh, a 24 millimeter um, Vittoria Pave tire on it. Um, only 24 mil, blind. Only 24. Yeah. yeah, we we pushed the boundaries that year and went wide. Um, <laughs> it's just it's insane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That was the widest you could get at the time, I think. And and yeah. we sort of because it was so muddy, we we pushed pushed the boat out a bit and and went extremely wide. Um, otherwise, it was 22, 23 mil tires even in Roubaix um, at, at, in that era. Um, and then I rode a rock shock on the front. Yeah. Um, I had a, an Eddie Merckx MX Leader um, steel frame, um, and it was built specially for me with um, an extension of the head tube uh, and an sten- extension of the seat tube. So right. if you're thinking, um, if you put the top tube at the very, very top of that bike, it would have been probably a 60, 61 centimeter frame. Right. But okay. the top tube was effectively put at a 58 instead. So the frame went, uh, became a little bit smaller. It was a little bit stiffer um, just because I made the triangles smaller effectively sure i I, Um, actually i remember another i remember just a i remember another rider a little bit earlier edwin van hoydonk on his colnagos used to have the same thing didn't he yeah the the extensions on the seat tube and the head tube so the frame just kept that little bit smaller and you still had that bit of control yeah it was it it just stiffened the bike up quite dramatically um and um and that's that's why we did that so uh you know and eddie was was quite happy to uh to do all that sort of stuff 
for me. So uh, so that was that was it, right? And then I think it was Chinelli forty four bars on there um, okay. um, with a Shimano uh, nine speed Durace and front ring fifty three outer and forty six inner and a straight eleven twenty one rear cassette. There we go. I, I love the way you can still remember all that detail. That's so cool, mate. It's it's so cool. It's, it's I know that the tech nerds are going to love all that stuff. But and were apart from the, the rock shocks, obviously were um, helping dampen a lot of the. How much travel did you have on those? And did you have, did you have the ability? Because I can't remember to lock them out on the on the normal roads on the asphalt and then switch them on again, um, or were they just always out? They they were you could tighten you know sort of stiffen them up a little bit but they they were still quite a bit of sort of play in them to be fair yeah, um, yeah I can't remember the exact amount of travel uh, it was it was basically stuff that they had from the the previous year um, right. that that was sort of carried on the following year though um, actually got. A, a, a purpose-made front fork, which was possible to lock out. Uh, oh, okay. And I remember RockShock getting in touch and asking if I wanted to ride uh, Shock the, the following year as well, because they would make one with a little bit of rake on it as well to to, to sort of make the bike handle uh, a little bit better. And it didn't raise the, uh, the front end up quite as much as it did with the traditional, uh, effectively mountain bike fork with just a, a different bridge on that. We could mount the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, um, the brake on. So yeah, yeah the, the following year they, 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 they went to town and, and got us these, these or got me this fork that was, um, purpose built for Paraguay Bay. And then we're going to skip forward a little bit because we, I just wanted to end this pod really uh, looking. I mean, to the Paris Bay that you want. Eleventh of of, uh, of April, uh, two thousand and four. You'd a few days before you'd podiumed. You were second, which I think a lot of people forget. You were second in in Ghent Wewelgem a yeah. couple of days beforehand. Only four days beforehand, in fact. So the day of Roubaix, you because I've had this conversation with you before because I always find it fascinating, and I know that you'd have relayed this countless times, mate. But yeah. it is the Queen of the Classics for God's sake. Um, what waking up in the morning. What what were the feelings that you that, that you had? Because obviously you're in good form anyway. Um, what feeling did you have coming into the edition that you ultimately won? It was it was a just a, a super special day. I, everything felt different that morning. Um, you, I could I could feel that something something was on the cards that day, and and you know rolling up to to the start, um, you know, to, to the village in, in Compiègne there. Um, I just knew that, that I was, I was on a good day. Um, and my soigneur at the time, um, you know, we've been counting down the days, um, from the start of the season to Paris Bay because I hadn't been able to do it the previous two years because, you know, I rode for a slightly smaller team and yeah. I'd really, I hated missing uh, missing that that day, uh, it was to the point where I couldn't even watch the race on those, um, you know, not live anyway on the, on those uh, sort of uh, those years. And he said, "Right, D Day." Um, he yeah. said when I walked out of the walked out the bus, and um, I kind of went, "Yeah, it is." 
And then, you know, having that meeting in the bus as well, we obviously had Andrea Taffi in there. We had Fabio Baldato there, Marcus Jungquist, Martin Vastia. You know, there were some real, real um, solid, solid bike riders in in our team. And our DS sort of said, right, guys, today, everything for Magnus. And I sort of looked around and sort of going, really? Both Baldato and, and Tafi haven't finished. Well, Tafi obviously having won it before, but yeah. um, it was it was yeah a special day. And then having Andrea just he just sat with me the whole race, just sat next to me um, every cobblestone sector, just talking to me and and you know helping me with positioning and and all the rest of it. And then you know as we uh, we got through the the forest. Um, where unfortunately Andrea had a bit of a, a moment. Um, I got caught behind Dario Pieri uh, and couldn't get around him. I just saw the race kind of disappearing in front of him. And and when I finally got around, I sort of closed down the gap so easily. Mm. And and I got back into the group there with uh, Baldato was still there. And it must have been probably about 20 of us left in, the, uh, uh, in, in that front group. And... You know, he kept on taking attacks and and moving around. And at one point, he came back and said, "Look, how are you doing? How are you, how are you feeling?" And and slightly cockily, I, I sort of said, "Well, you better have a look because I don't think the mechanics put a chain on my bike today." And he sort oh, of wow. Okay, so you just felt like I mean to to, to bring in uh, our our mate Adam Blythe, diamond legs, <laughs> diamond legs, yeah. <laughs> No, I, lit- I, I, I did feel like I hadn't touched the pedals to that point and we were 200K wow. into the race. Wow. And okay. he just said, right, that's cool. Look after, as soon as Museo van Pietigem or, or, or this among goes um, and makes their move, make sure you're on it. I'll cover the rest and yeah. I'll just sit on and uh, we'll see where it takes us. And, you know, as we... And um, Baldato fair play to him. He he did some mega mega ride rides that day, um, covering attacks left, right, and centre. And then just before we come to to the carry four, he came back and and got me, um, towed me into the wheel of of Museo, um, and basically dropped me off there into into the carry four. And we're going across that that sector, and I thought, Ooh, this this is stinging a bit now. Like this yeah. is really really uncomfortable and but i didn't think anything super special of it it was just like you know i was hurting on the wheel and as we came out of that first sector you know you take the right hand turn by the cafe and then you're about to go across that that 100 meters of tarmac and then you're coming on to to the second part of it and i looked back and there's only five of us left you know and and at that moment i thought oh okay if if that was the as as bad as it's gonna get I'm, I'm in with a chance of, of winning this. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, slightly fortunate for me and, and and the rest of the guys, very unfortunate for Museo. He punctured on the sector of him. Um, you know, I, I missed that sort of flicking across from... Uh, now they've they put these red and white sort of bollards up so you can't actually use the tarmac on yes, the side uh, yeah, of that yeah. sector. Back then we could use the tarmac, so it wasn't really classified as a sector as far as... I was concerned, but mm. I switched from the one side across the road onto the other side, and I just missed this massive stone that was lying on the tarmac there, and Museo hit it, punctured, um, and that left the four of us, you know, Cancellara, Rog, me, and, and Tristan to yeah. 
to go to the finish. But we still knew that Van Petergen was coming. You say wasn't going to lie down and, and just, just take defeat like that. Um, I mean, when you look at the riders just behind, I mean, Misea punched but you had Van Petergen, Van Bon, Hinkapi, Tom Bonin, Leif Host, Flesher, Weinstein's had been the world champion. You know, there was some hitters breathing down your neck at half a minute. Yeah. The, I mean, the, <laughs> when, it, when, when you hear those names, you cry. Just, just a reminder it, to everybody. Yeah, this yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Did we actually hold them off? Um, but yeah, we, we managed to do that. So, um, and, and coming into the velodrome, it was just acting on, on sort of pure instinct, really. I, I knew I wanted to be sort of third wheel you know, on, on the velodrome. Um, I was, I thought that Roger Hammond was going to be the quickest in that sprint, although Tristan obviously very, very fast. This other guy that I didn't really know who he was turned out to be Fabian Cancellara, um, right. um, you know, was, was up there as well with us. But I was, I was most worried about Rog um, on that day in, largely because we we used to share an apartment together and a house together in Belgium. We were out training every single day together. Um, I knew exactly how fast it was in the sprint. And right. I knew that he would he he really would challenge me on that one. Yeah. But as we're coming in out of turn two um, and we're up the banking and I sort of accelerate to to start my sprint and I thought the best way would be to to do a long a long sprint because I I felt like I had the power left to do a to do a long one, yeah. um, and Rog goes at the exact same moment and sort of boxes me in on on the wheel of um, so I'm on the wheel of of Can- Cancellara, yeah, with Rog kind of boxing me in, and for some reason like I didn't panic I I just sat there waited because I knew if I try go around it I've lost it. Yeah. And I just waited and waited. And when Rog then started sprinting, uh, Cancellara just moved up ever so slightly on, on in the turn there. And he gave me enough room to go on the Cote d'Azur underneath a pair of them. And, you know, two, two big, massive pedal strokes uh, later. And, and I was clear. And, and then it was like you're sort of starting to look either side and, and you're starting to think, was there anyone ahead of us? Um, when <laughs> just there's this sense of realizing, oh my god, just making sure I'm we about, have actually got I'm this. I'm about yeah, to yeah. win this, or am I? Um, <laughs> you know, was there anyone up the road? Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then obviously, yeah, the, the the feeling of of putting your hands up in the air on on that velodrome, yeah, that that sensation will never leave me. That's fantastic. It's, it's really. Uh, I, I don't think I've actually I, I've read and heard other people, and you you, you talk about this. And to other people, for I've never had this one-on-one with you. And as you were talking about that bit, this I just felt this very, very big smile come on my face, mate, and the, the and the hairs stand up on the back of my neck because you know I, it's a race I've never ridden, but it's a race I've been to. I've, I've ridden most of the course myself, and it, it's um it's a very, 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 very special race. And and is it, uh, isn't I, it just you can feel the, you can feel the heritage of of those roads through mm-hmm. the stones when you ride it. It's it's yeah. you know the the this. The meaning that those roads have, both from a, a sort of a, a sporting perspective, but also from that that particular area of the world, from you know the the, the wars that have been on yeah, there, and course. and you know the farmers that use those those roads on a daily basis to and from their fields, and you know there's just something special coming up on out of the ground, and you you can't do anything but love you know, everything that, that it sort of means and, and the history that, that it carries. 
Yeah, there's a, a there's a, there's a there's a there's a, also a humbleness to the roads. There's a humble yeah. ability to those roads. And um, and if any of you, uh, obviously everybody knows Roubaix, but I, what I would really do is is go back and, and read about the history of it, just to set into context yeah. what you you were just saying, Magnus, because it is a it's 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 obviously that the riders. The, the the races themselves have given it, but the actual history that the fabric of those roads um, is so rich, and that's what adds to the, making this race such a special one, mate. And um, and you've got you've got that cobblestone. And the cool thing is when you we've now got um, the women's power bay, and both of your daughters, you'd imagine it's a lot of pressure and put a lot of pressure on. <laughs> you know, we talk about not putting pressure on your kids, <laughs> but um, well, let's just. I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. But we, you know, you've got two um, two daughters who are going to be riding that one in the next few years. And um, that must be massively exciting. Um, yeah, great stuff. And Magnus, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you, mate. I'm going to do one one final thing just to wrap this up. Mm. Um, what I'm going to ask you to do, it's it's not a quiz as such. Okay. And we've, got, we've got a jingle for it. Um, but although it's actually called a quiz, it isn't one. Um, it's called the One Word Answer Quiz. The One Word Answer Quiz. <laughs> yeah. so, I love, I love yeah. the jingles. <laughs> I know. Uh, wait, uh, yeah, let me just uh, – what I want you to do hmm. is uh, is for me is to sum up the, all of the teams you've been in in one word. And I'm okay. going to go through them for you, okay? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go through your teams from 1996 to, to 2012, actually, with UK Youth. Yeah. And all I want you to do in one word – is sum up the team and or your experience on the team. Um, okay. Okay. You ready to roll? I think so. 1996, Colstrop. Beginning. Beginning. Okay. Uh, 97, Pullman's Listex. Progression. Okay. Gan from 1998. Um, professional... Yeah, I think we'll go with professional. <laughs> professional. I like the way you wanted to add another word on, so I'm going to allow you to do that because the, the team changed the name to Credit Agricole. So about 1999, Credit Agricole. Yeah. Professional family, I was going to say. Professional family. Okay, great. And then 2002, 2003, Team Factor. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Um, 2004, this might, this might be one you have to think about for a bit. Alessio Bianchi, well, of course, you won Roubaix. That's a two-word answer to that one as well. I'm afraid. I'm going to allow you that, Magnus. Okay. Go- okay. Um, difficult or challenging and winning. Challenging and winning. Okay. Uh, liquid gas. Italian. Italian. <laughs> Yes, that's so broad. So, so broad. I love that. There's also a get out one as well. Okay, Garmin. Family. Family, okay. And one of the greatest names that any cycling team ever had in history, and it's this, teammagnusmaximuscoffee.com. Wind down. Wind down. Um, we bumped into each other when you were on it. Do, yeah. do, you, do you remember you got locked... You got locked out of your van and we had to help you uh, get into the bulkhead at the back. (laughs) (laughs) I think I had to borrow a hacksaw or something like that to get through the bulkhead, yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, that that was in uh, Tour de Finisterre, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, flipping heck, brilliant (laughs) stuff. Yeah, I remember that in the car park. Oh, great stuff that was. Um, And then finally, 2012, your little comeback, uh, UK Youth. Um, Management. 
management because, of course, you were a player manager, weren't you? Yeah. Essentially. Um, well, Magnus, we're we just going to – here we go. I'm going to list them back. So beginning, progression, professional, family, awesome, challenging, forward slash winning, Italian family, wind down, and management. That's your career summed up in however many words that is. There we go. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, mate, it's been an absolute it's been an absolute pleasure. We've gone way over because I I, I couldn't not interrupt your your Paris Bay story um, because it's magnificent. And uh, thanks for speaking so generously about your daughters and about your your early career. And thanks for digging deep on the quiz. And and we've essentially formed a new band called Doommonger. So watch yeah, this have. space <laughs> for me and Magnus in the future. Uh, we might um, give you a couple of tunes when we're on comms, mate. But, yeah, uh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Mate, thanks so much for having a chat with us today. Thanks for having me. And um, and we'll catch up very, very soon. Cheers, buddy. All right. Cheers, mate. I really did love that chat with Magnus. And I'll be honest with you, I could listen to him talk all day about the classics. And hopefully you're as excited as I am as we roll into the spring classic season. Thanks to Perry Apquinneth for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to any other heavy metal musicians or pyrotechnicians you might know who want to join our new heavy metal supergroup, Doommonger. Or... Finally, a massive thanks again to Maggie for joining us on the podcast today. Hope he continues to enjoy the path his two daughters take through their cycling careers and gets the privilege of calling him home to victory many more times in the future. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. (laughs) 